Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 18 to 21. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. This too is the word of God for the people of God. So what is the kingdom of God like? To what can it be compared? That is the business of our parables for this morning, because these are parables, short though they may be. These four verses contain two glimpses, two succinct explanations of the kingdom. And parables, as we know, are Jesus's preferred method of teaching, meant to teach his hearers uh, something about who he is, who God is, a life of faith, etc. And, and parables are more than metaphors, right? It's, it isn't as simple as a thing is like this thing. I might say, to use a more modern spin on it, to say, like, the kingdom of God is like a farm stand with signs on both sides of the road directing you to farm fresh eggs and tomatoes and peaches. Or, the kingdom of God is like a family of truffle foragers who traverse the Italian forest looking for the treasure of fungus. Or, the kingdom of God is like an invasive species of snail that is saving an endangered bird. Or, the kingdom of God is like Barbie land. (laughs) It makes sense, right? You guys understand the kingdom of God now? Perfect. There is an arc, a movement to parables. They are meant to illuminate, to expand, to invite us into a deeper understanding. For Jesus, in Luke's gospel, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and like a woman hiding yeast into three measures of flour. That tells us something about the kingdom of God. The meaning, however, is ours to interpret. But we're smart people. I think we can figure it out together. We're going to try. The most traditional or perhaps the most familiar interpretation is what Pastor Amanda shared. It focuses on the way that these two very small things result in something new, something that is much bigger. From the tiniest seed, we get a tree, and from a little bit of yeast, we get loaves of bread. The focus is on the surprising, almost miraculous occurrence of something tiny, seemingly insignificant, bringing about something significant. That makes sense, right? Seeds are little, trees are big. I don't know that we need the parable to tell us that the kingdom of God is big or mighty. That seems fairly self-explanatory. But perhaps what it tells us also is that the kingdom of God is one of transformation, a force that can make things new. And if things can be changed and can be made new, then the kingdom of God is possibility. And if there is possibility, then there's hope. So we've got transformation and hope. I like where this is going. So let's maybe turn our attention to what is produced in the parable. What is gained from the mustard tree and the leavened dough? Well, food, for one thing. And not just like a few loaves of bread. It says that the woman puts yeast into three measures of flour. And that's something like 60 pounds of flour. 
Uh, so that will produce more bread than this woman or even her entire household could eat in a month. It's a lot of bread. It is abundant to the point of being like hyperbolic. It's a lot, it's a lot of bread. And if she wanted to ensure that that bread wasn't wasted, the woman would need to see that it was shared, that it was passed out to others so it could be eaten. I think it's also worth noting that the parable says that she worked the flour until all of it was leavened. There are no half measures, no exclusions. It all comes together. There's a universality to it. And what about the mustard plant? It makes a home, right? The birds of the air, part of God's good creation, build their nests in its branches. The mustard plant will shade them, protect them, give them a place to raise their young. It is a part of the good world that God gives us. Like the sun that insists on shining, the seed insists on growing, to be used by anyone who finds the plant. Like the vast amount of bread baked by the woman, the mustard plant offers more than a single person or a single bird could use. The invitation to partake is a universal one. The kingdom of God is extravagant in its abundance. It is where all of creation will find a home, will find a place to rest. The kingdom is present at the communal oven of a Galilean village when everyone has enough to eat. It is present in the bush that has created shelter for all manner of insects and bugs and birds and animals. It is present in everything and is available to all, from the sourdough starters to the rain and the sunshine. And that points me to another element of these parables. They are both things that happen naturally, right? They happen without us, or they can happen without us. Even when we plant seeds in the soil and tend to them, we, can, we can't guarantee what will be produced. Even when we measure our flour and our yeast and our water carefully, dough does what it wants sometimes. I have plenty of experience with failed gardening and baking attempts to tell you that our best intentions don't always pan out. Perhaps, then, the parable is telling us that the kingdom of God cannot and will not be bound. It exists, it grows, it moves, it transforms on its own. And yet there is an amount of nurturing required, isn't there? Seeds grow without human intervention, and yeast, if it found flour on its own, would ferment even if we're not there. But when we tend to them, when we nurture them, the result becomes something different. Whether or not the seeds and yeast need us, whether or not the kingdom of God needs us to flourish, we are asked to and given the opportunity to participate. The seed and the yeast, as we've already said, are full of uh, possibility. They can be transformed. What we see is potential, but that potential needs to be actualized. The yeast has to be placed in the dough, the seed has to be planted. The parable tells us that like dough that has been carefully prepared with a sourdough starter or a child growing in the womb or a seed that has been planted and tended, the kingdom will come when we nurture it. We're not off the hook with the kingdom of God, boundless though it may be. There is an obligation, a call for humanity to be sowers and kneaders and bakers collaborators with God in the bringing forth of the kingdom. I mean, Jesus asks us, teaches us to pray for the kingdom, right? Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
because we have a responsibility to enact the kingdom. New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine wrote this about these two parables. She said, the kingdom of God is found in what today we might call our own backyard, in the generosity of nature and in the daily working of men and women. Don't ask when it comes or where it is. The when, the when is in its own good time and as long as it takes for the seed to sprout and the dough to rise. The where is that it is already present in the world. The kingdom is present when humanity and nature work together. And when we do what we were put here to do, to go out on a limb, to provide for others. So the kingdom of God, as stated in these two parables, is fecund and transformative and hopeful and inclusive and abundant, boundless, and also ours to tend, ours to enact. And I don't know, I think all of this feels pretty good, right? Sounds like something that I want to be asking for. I don't mind praying for this kind of kingdom where all of these things are possible. I'm for it. But I also, I want to be clear about something because I believe all these things that we've said about what the kingdom of God is. And I also believe that it is bigger, more powerful, more everything than we can comprehend. The kingdom of God doesn't just give a little bit more bread to the hungry. It ensures that everyone, every single person, is well-fed. It does not just offer a nesting place, a sanctuary to us or the people that look like us or think like us. The kingdom opens its arms wide to everyone, regardless of who they are or what they've done. The kingdom of God is in many ways in opposition to the world that we currently exist in. It does not conform to the world as we know it. It challenges it. It breaks it open. It turns it on its head. I wonder sometimes if Jesus spoke in parables because they made tangible things that we are not quite able to grasp. It makes me think of the character Big Anthony in Streganona. We talked about this during Partner with the Preacher. Big Anthony sees Streganona using this magic pasta pot to make spaghetti, and it's cool, it's magic. And he thinks that he can harness that power. And so like Big Anthony, we see the kingdom of God, we see this magic pot producing heaps of spaghetti, and we think we can make it do what we want it to do, use it to make us look good only to realize it is a power that we are not ready for, only after we've nearly flooded the town with spaghetti. The kingdom of God is not a magic spaghetti pot, though there might be a parable possibility there. We can get to that later. The point I'm trying to make is that the kingdom of God is all of these good things that we've mentioned, and it is powerful and challenging and disruptive and uncomfortable. In the verses before this parable, Jesus is confronted by a leader of a synagogue. It's the Sabbath day, and there at the synagogue, Jesus meets a woman who has been hunched over for 18 years. She's been hunched over, unable to to walk upright. It would have been painful for her to move around. And Jesus sees her and calls her to him and, and heals her. And immediately, this woman stands upright and begins to praise God. It is a miraculous moment but it's the Sabbath. 
and the leader of the synagogue is indignant. There are six days on which work ought to be done, he says. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, who knows the Torah, he knows it uh, backwards and forwards, he knows his scripture, Jesus will not be corrected. Hypocrite, he calls him. Yes, the Sabbath day is sacred. It is set apart. But all of, you, all of them would be willing to untie an ox or a donkey to lead it to water on the Sabbath. And if they are willing to do that for their animals, how much more should they be willing to do that for this woman, for this daughter of Abraham, as Jesus calls her? He says, Ought not this woman, bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Jesus is making a claim about the law, the way that they have always lived, the way that things have always been done. He is saying that people are more important than rules. People are more important than systems and structures. And that there is nothing more sacred, nothing more honoring to God than caring for others. The story of healing ends with Jesus' opponents being put to shame. That's what the Gospel of Luke says. And that transitions directly into our parables for this morning. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Putting these two parables into context with Jesus' Sabbath healing tells me that the kingdom of God puts the powers that be on notice. The way that things have always been done, the known order and the known structures, the kingdom of God is not those things. In fact, the kingdom of God stands in opposition to them. The kingdom of God is something of unfathomable goodness and hope, and it means the end of things as they are now. Something will die for this transformative kingdom to come into being. It requires uh, us to let go of power and privilege in favor of seeking abundance for everyone. It asks us to stop seeking acclaim and approval, money, whatever it is we want from the world, that all people might be set free from their bondage. This is the discomfort of the truth of the kingdom, right? That kingdom that Jesus instructed us to pray for, instructed us to call into uh, being. And I'll be honest, I think that we, meaning all of humanity, might not be as earnest in our recitation of the Lord's Prayer if we took the time to parse out exactly what we were praying for? Do I genuinely want God's intervention in the world if it means that I will not be as comfortable? I imagine that we would like to align ourselves in this parable with the woman hiding the yeast or the seed itself or even the birds that find a home in the mustard plant. But I have to wonder if more often than we care to admit, we are the synagogue leader that needs to be reminded of who God is and what God is about. Theologian Karl Barth wrote that Christians uh, pray that God will cause God's righteousness to appear and dwell on a new earth under a new heaven. Meanwhile, they must also act in accordance with their prayer as people who are responsible for the preservation and renewal, the deepening and extending of the divinely ordained human rights, human freedom, and human peace. We cannot ask for God's will to be done and then continue to behave in accordance with the systems and the powers of this world. The kingdom of God asks us to evaluate 
our priorities. It will mean feeding people, literally, finding ways financial and structural to address hunger until there's no longer a line at in-town cares on Saturday mornings. It will mean maybe changing the structure of this building and even this chancel so that everyone of whatever bodily ability can get up here to lead in worship. It will mean putting money and time towards composting and committing to alternative means of travel and finding brands that are mindful of their carbon footprint and more than that, choosing brands that are um, supportive of their employees, that provide more than a living wage, healthcare. Praying for the kingdom of God, praying for God's kingdom to arrive onto earth means praying for an end to any system that is oppressive, right? Anything that keeps people down, that refuses justice, that refuses equity. Is that something that we are genuinely ready to ask for, to participate in. I admit that I am not always there. But the good news, my friends, the good news of this world upheaving kingdom is that God is good. God's kingdom is good. So we know that when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for something good. Praying for the kingdom is praying for the dignity and worth of all human beings. It is praying for the care and flourishing of what our good God has made. It may be uncomfortable, and it will demand much of us, but it is good. And we know that we are not alone. Yes, sometimes we may be the synagogue leader that needs a kingdom-sized reality check, but we are also the seed and the tree and the loaves, and the birds, and the woman, and the yeast. Because God's kingdom is present and working in and through all of us, through all of creation. God is at work, and God is good and loving and gracious. And thanks be to God that when we stumble at being co-laborers with God in this kingdom, we are forgiven, and in all of it, we are deeply and unconditionally loved. So what is the kingdom of God like? It is like a community of people of different ages and backgrounds who lovingly, hopefully, though imperfectly, work for the dignity and worth of all people, seeking justice and walking humbly with God together. Amen.